Hello and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Hello and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. I'm Eliza Appley and today we'll be hearing from Michael Pepiet, art historian, curator, critic and, in the words of the art newspaper, the finest art writer of his generation. Over his career, Michael has met and profiled some of the best-known artists of the modern age, including Francis Bacon, Sonia Delaunay, David Hockney and Lucien Freud. Formerly arts editor at Le Monde and editor at Art International, Michael has also reported for the New York Times, Financial Times and Art News, and he has written the definitive Francis Bacon biography, Anatomy of an Enigma. Michael has curated numerous exhibitions, including a Dado exhibition for the Venice Biennale, a Caravaggio Bacon exhibit for the Galleria Borghese in Rome, and the recent Bacon retrospective at the Royal Academy in London, Francis Bacon, Man and Beast. In his new anthology for Thames and Hudson, Artists' Lives, Michael gathers some of his favourite artist profiles and interviews from the last decades, introducing us to some of the liveliest modern creative minds. Throughout, Michael brings his special blend of anecdote and art criticism, illuminating an artist's biography and personality as much as their work. He writes, While rigorous, formal and iconographic analysis might sharpen the eye, it often falls short of quickening the heart. The life of the artist has always appeared to me an integral part of any close study of the ways images originate and evolve. I caught up with Michael as he signed copies of Artists' Lives at the Thames and Hudson offices in London. So, Michael, you're recognised today as a curator, critic and a leading authority on 20th century art. Yet you describe in the introduction to this new anthology that as a young man, you were too absorbed by life itself and finding my own place in it to be able to take a real interest in art. So how and when did that interest ignite? It's been gradual, you know. I mean, uh, after all, when you're young, you have so many things flying about. You know, life takes over. I suppose you could say meeting Francis Bacon was a a real watershed. I was, uh, I don't know, about 20, 21, something like that. I was trying to do this student magazine, and I wanted to do something about art in Britain because I'd I'd done a year of uh, art history, and I'd been told by my professor that art had stopped with uh, basically with the Renaissance or with Rubens, which was his great speciality. And I was convinced that had to be wrong. 
Uh, and so I went out and tried to do this issue. And somebody said, you should meet Francis Bacon. It was actually in 63 that I met him. And so he'd uh, he'd had his um, big Tate show in 62, the year before. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't even then, he wasn't famous the way he is today. I mean, he was uh, an artist who was getting really into his stride and beginning to get towards, I suppose, the apex of his career. So I, I knew somebody whose mother had been photographed by John Deakin. It's uh, a friend I still have, still still around. Uh, and um, he told me just to go to the French pub in Soho and try and meet John Deakin. So up I trooped, you know, with my return ticket and stood in a corner with a half pint, sort of wondering, you know, <laughs> who in this lot might John Deacon be? And um, uh, I asked sort of discreetly and was told that little man sitting on the on the bar stool. So I went up and sort of just said to him, you know, I mean, uh, lamely enough, I said, do you think you could um, introduce me to Francis Bacon? But uh, John said, oh, my dear, I don't know whether now that she's become so famous, so famous, she'd want to meet a mere student like you. And um, uh, down the bar, there was some commotion. And this man turned around with a very wide, wide face and wide set eyes, a very, you know, very sort of perceptive gaze turned around and said, now, don't listen to that old fool. Uh, what are you having to drink? And that was bacon. Wow. So, <laughs> so, and then he said, what are you doing for lunch? Of course, I wasn't doing anything for lunch. I was going to take the train back to university, you know. And uh, suddenly there I was in Wheeler's restaurant, wondering how to deal with these uh, lovely crustaceans that have been put in front of me uh, without making a fool of myself. And there was Lucian Freud, there was John Deacon himself, and uh, a bunch of other people. And the party just went on went on until the small hours. I mean, uh, it was amazing. There was no going back. I mean, you know, there were a lot of ups and downs, but I mean, life with Francis was a sort of roller coaster and much more exciting than sitting in lecture theatres and sort of swatting. I bet. It it sounds like a really life-changing encounter, opening your eyes to, to art, opening doors to other artists. Would you say that that meeting was also the beginning of your interest in artists' biography and, and personality as much as their work. Yes, I think so. I met this very charming man and got on with him so well that we started seeing a lot of each other. I kept escaping university and coming back to London to meet him. But I had no idea what his painting was like. And then I thought, well, as we're doing this interview, I think I should get to know what he does as well. And I was appalled. Uh, I had no idea that these sort of twisted, violent images were done by this very courteous, charming, sophisticated man I got on so well with. And I suppose that's why I've always been interested in the artists themselves, their lives, their condition, their mental state, if you like, their their private lives even, because the, the art is fascinating, but seeing it complete within a life makes it even more interesting and more human. So in 1966, um, three years after this, this really formative encounter with Francis Bacon, you left England and moved to Paris, where you worked at Reality before moving to Le Monde. 
I'd love to hear a little more about those early years of your career, starting out as a, a young professional, young writer in a new city, uh, a new language, meeting all of these art world luminaries. It sounds exciting and, and maybe also a bit intimidating. It was certainly intimidating. Paris was very intimidating, a very cold city, I found, after London, where I had uh, friends and, and really a whole life. So I had to struggle. It's not a city that takes you in easily. I love it. But at that moment, I also hated it. But there was a huge possibility here because I was just given the sort of art portfolio on this, this magazine, which was a, an English edition of the French Réalité. So we could really pick and choose what we took from the French edition in the way of art, in the way of anything, and then either write something original or translate and you know, add, subtract. So I suddenly had the whole of art history, that, and I was let free in it, left, let to roam. You know, it's only in retrospect that you realise just how lucky you, you've been, because for me, that was a dream apprenticeship. So those early years in Paris, lots of exposure to different uh, artistic traditions, and, and as you say, a kind of um, art historical training in and of itself. But you were also meeting lots of artists in those first years in Paris. Were there any encounters that particularly stood out for you and or impressed you? Yes, well, Paris in a way was a simpler place, I suppose everywhere was simpler 60 years ago. So it seems, anyhow, you did see people, well-known artists, just having a drink in the in the big cafes still in Montparnasse. If he hadn't just died, I'm sure I would have come across Giacometti while I was there. So every now and then, yes, I had a meeting in, in the studio with an artist because I'd been asked to write, uh, write about that artist. And I met Sonia Delaunay that way. She was quite formidable and began with a, a sort of complete denunciation of Picasso at uh, the moment I, I got there and I decided discretion was the better part of valour and I'd let her sort of get that off her chest. And uh, she turned out to be a very charming, interesting and admirable woman, although she was quite convinced of her superiority, both as an artist and as a person. I quite warmed to her. She was nice to me in the end, but she wasn't the easiest person to interview. You know, I met a lot of artists like that, uh, Dubuffet, uh, Tapiers, um, a whole range of, of people. And um, after a while, it became a bit my family, I suppose, in, in Paris, because I used to go to the big openings and you'd say hello to one person. And if you were lucky, they might introduce you to somebody else. And my, my Paris was Paris of the artists and the writers. Did you find it easier to write about the artists you met in person? I, I would imagine those personal encounters, the experience of an artist's home or studio must have been helpful in allowing you to, to describe the artist as much as, as the art. Absolutely. It did play an important role. Seeing the studio for me has always been a trigger I think some of the best things, better things I've written, because it's like an open book very often. You realise all sorts of things almost without, uh, you know, without it registering. We're just looking and you just put certain elements together and you get a better sort of idea of the cocoon out of which these works of art have come. 
But I think it was also, I mean, in the case of Stahl and the case of Giacometti, I just missed them. I mean, I actually had a letter of introduction to Giacometti from Francis Bacon saying, you know, here he is, look after him, uh, basically, and uh, couldn't deliver the letter because, you know, I went round to the studio, knocked on the door several times and stood there sort of waiting and nothing happened. And I learned he'd just gone back to Switzerland and about the time I was trying to deliver my letter almost to the day he died. So that never happened. But what did happen is out of the disappointment, as it were, of not meeting somebody I really wanted to, to get to know very much, came this obsession with them. So I managed to meet everybody else. I managed to meet the wives, the girlfriends, those closest to the artist the poets who wrote about him or the dealers that had sort of really helped that artist develop and become better known. So I got into the, as it were, into their world. Let, let's talk a little bit more about Giacometti because he is, alongside Francis Bacon, probably the strongest presence in this anthology. You describe him as one of the pillars of your existence a source of great intellectual fascination, but also emotional sustenance. What is it that that captivates and, and comforts you in Giacometti's work? Giacometti impressed me terrifically by his stamina, I suppose it was, and his ability, it seemed to weather harsh conditions, almost to the extent that he created harsh conditions in order to create most fully, most successfully, most poignantly, essentially, you know, because everything was whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. Sometimes, you know, I think this is a generally accepted human truth, life can whittle you down or you get sort of whittled down. And I took huge, more than comfort, huge courage in a sense, looking at those skeletal Giacometti figures and thinking, well, they survived. They might have been sort of reduced, reduced, so there was nothing much left. But the uh, the essence was still there. The, the, the human spirit, the, the resistance to life was there. And I sort of took it as a talisman in, in a way. And here, you know, life and art were completely merged. And you know, there was. Um, uh, I went through a very difficult period emotionally, but I went back to that exhibition at the Tuileries, I think it was 1969, and everything was frozen. I remember in the gardens, the trees were shrunk, leafless, and there was just this sort of kind of cold. <laughs> in the museum, there was the same thing, except you knew that both, both the trees and the sculptures were survivors. It's striking to me also that, that Giacometti and Bacon, these two artists that were particularly important to you, are also two artists who, more than many of their contemporaries, or maybe any of their contemporaries, kept figuration alive and important and interesting through the long reign of abstract art. Were you particularly drawn to figurative work as you've also been drawn to the lived experience of the artist? Well, I mean, if you look at my sort of 
funny little trajectory. I was brainwashed, really, in the beginning by Bacon, who couldn't have been more derisive about uh, about abstract art and uh, saw it as a, as a complete sort of um, cul-de-sac. You know, there's just no no future. I was very influenced by him, but also. Although there was abstract artists who work I admired, I mean, Roscoe, for instance, and still admire very much. On the whole, I was drawn to the to the figure, to the figurative image, a reflection of mankind, which I think has to be more powerful in the end. I think uh, abstract art was a very, very interesting experiment, but it was a, an experiment really with a, you know, almost a best by date on it because it was a, a dimension to be explored, but it can't, I don't think, really have the same force and impact as the human figure because that immediately engages us almost physically with the picture. Putting together this anthology, Michael, you're returning to work from 10, 20, 30, sometimes 60 years ago. I'd, I'd love to know how you chose which writing to include in the book. That's such a good question. I, I suppose uh, I saw it as a whole. I wanted to get certain things uh, in, a bit like, as well, I suppose, the best the best dinner party you might organise, you know, and you've got this one and that one and the other one. Oh, we'll sort of spice it up with this or calm it down, cool it with that. Otherwise, I think I, I judged it mainly on what I thought was what was the better writing I'd done and the pieces that I still felt reasonably confident about that had stood, uh, you know, it's rather presumptuous for me to say so, but stood a certain test of time in my mind anyhow. I also wanted to make it as uh, as as varied and hopefully as readable, entertaining as possible. So I've sort of dosed the longer, more serious things with lighter, lighter stuff. And finally, Michael, how did it feel to go back through these decades of your work and be reacquainted with not only the many remarkable artists you've met, but also with your own younger self? Well, I feel immensely grateful somehow as somebody who really didn't know what to do with himself and neither did anybody else for a long time, sort of through a series of, um, of complete sort of uh, accidents found himself and found a, a way of living, uh, as it were, and a way also, I suppose, of, uh, of keeping going. You know, it, it's a difficult path. It's a very difficult path. I think somehow or another, I managed to, uh, to keep to it and almost build it out of chance encounters, out of, I suppose, seeing how one could deepen one's appreciation of certain things, improve as a professional, an expert, if you like, developing the range of sensibility that you can react uh, to things more widely, more deeply if possible, and perhaps communicate the, the feelings that you have uh, that might encourage other people along that path and more intensely into art. Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's, it's really been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks very much. 
You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 